0: Hello, folks. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. My name is Roy Benzvi, and I'm your host. And I hope you enjoy this uh, podcast that we have for you this week. And on, on this episode, we have Dr. Anat Wolf, who is the co-author of "The War of Return: How Western Indulgence of the Palestinian Dream Has Obstructed the War the Path to Peace." Sorry, and. Just to give a, bit, a little bit of background on um, on nut, she was a member of the Israeli parliament from 2010 to 2013. She served as chair of the Education Committee and member of the Influential Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. She also has a BA from Harvard, and an MBA from INSID in France, and a PhD in political science from the, from the University of Cambridge. She was also an intelligence officer in the IDF. So a lot of accolades, a lot of academia, and I think the most important is that she is a critical thinker and someone that was able to look outside of the political party that she was affiliated with to recognize that there is a problem that doesn't exactly sit well with the party ideology. You know, politics has become like religion, and you have to abide if you're in a certain party you have to abide by all their beliefs and it has become dogma in a way so when people break free of that i think there is more room for critical thought uh you're not just led blindly by the party politics by the party whatever they demand of you again it's very similarly to how religion acts, I think now politics is the new religion and you're seeing that across the US. I mean, you're seeing it everywhere. had a blast doing this podcast, a nut is a great, great person. I love that unlike a lot of people that, that when you talk to them about these type of topics, it gets very heated and this was just a fun conversation with humor with a lot of historical and political insight. And I I hope that we can have more of that on all these different topics. I think that um, free-flowing, good faith, open dialogue is critical. And that's the only way that we can move forward on any topic, not through suppression of speech and not through lynch mobs on Twitter and not through cancel culture, but through conversation and let the best ideas flow to the top. So we really talked about a whole wide range of issues from refugees, UNRWA, the Jews after World War II that had to flee uh, Muslim countries in North Africa and in the Middle East, to the legitimacy of Israel as a country for the Jews and why the world per- perhaps doesn't see it that way. And all these different topics that she covers in the book as well, The War of Return. It was a great conversation. So, without further ado, here is this week's guest, a Wilf. The Genuinely Interested Postback. Hey Nat, how are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you.
0: Thanks for coming on the podcast. I've uh, been watching a lot of your stuff recently and uh, I'm really excited about about uh, you you coming on today.
1: Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Happy to talk.
0: Yeah, so how's uh how's Israel now? It, you know, I know Israel during this time it's it's hot. Hotter than uh <laughs> hotter than uh, comfort should allow. But uh how is it now?
1: confusing actually the weather is mostly pleasant and uh i'm able to go to the beach almost every day which is nice, nice. but uh beaches but yeah, are open uh beaches are open yes beaches are open okay and uh but yes it's confusing uh by may we thought that all of this is behind us and the last month saw a rapid rise in cases again so it's all very confusing at this point.
0: So because I know here they keep switching um, and it also depends on the state, but they open and they're, they're closing everything back down and then they're reopening and then they're saying, oh, we'll only do this thing. Um, maybe we'll open, um, I don't know, restaurants, but we'll keep gyms closed. And I know here I, I just moved to Connecticut a few months ago and basically indoor restaurants are closed, but they've allowed for outdoor seatings. Um, what's the situation like in uh, Israel?
1: So it's quite similar. Uh, I mean, part of it has to do with the fact that there's we're still learning about the virus. So generally, we know that outdoors the risk is lower. Um, indoors, uh, especially if it's closed, if uh, uh, there's a high, I mean, there's a lot of people. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of economic pressure, and uh, the kind of the tension between the policies and the economic impact is growing greater by the day. So, um, all of it is is confusing, and I think at this point, the government also is not, um, not inspiring trust, uh, shall I say, at this moment. I mean, they don't seem to be knowing what they're doing, either medically or economically.
0: Yes, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's that's what's happening here, but on steroids. Um, it's yeah. just everything's completely out of whack. And I think with whatever is going on now politically, I think the um, the starting point was COVID, was people losing their jobs and staying at home for all these months and not really knowing what to do, and then this thing just erupted out of that. Um, but we'll, we can talk about that maybe a little bit later. But I think two things I really want to touch on today is obviously the, the book, The War of Return, and you know getting into that. And the other is um, the image of Israel. Um, I think that's something that is... I mean, if, if, if we were a brand and there was a PR company doing our PR, I would fire them. We just... Our image, I think, on the world... Uh, scale and it's just it's not good to put it lightly so those are two things I would really like to talk about but maybe before all that you can kind of give us a little bit of a background tell us a little bit about yourself
1: so um, my name is Aina Wilf, uh born and raised in Israel uh, in Jerusalem I've uh, spent most of my adult life in uh, either Uh, academia, consulting, and mostly public service. I've worked with uh, some politicians and then became a member of parliament, a member of the Israeli Knesset. That was in 2010, for three years. And uh, ever since I left politics about seven years ago, I've been uh, mostly writing and speaking. Uh, I joke that I do three things. Uh, I write, I talk, and I think.
0: (laughs) I like that. Um, And what made you want to leave politics?
1: Uh, Well, it wasn't really my choice. I think it rarely is for a politician. (laughs) Uh, I made uh, a fateful political choice that ultimately landed me out of politics uh, when you're in politics, you want to stay. Uh, yeah. But once you're out of politics, the question of whether to return is very different. It's one thing to want to stay when you're already there. It's a very different question to decide to go back once you're out.
0: Yeah, but but we do have a lot of lifelong politicians that seem to bounce in and out. Right, Ehud Barak is one, and I'm sure off the top of my head I can't think of any, but I'm sure there's many others that seem to bounce in and out of our lives for many, many years.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I I certainly, I worked with Shimon Peres, who was in all the time. Yeah. But uh, sometimes up, sometimes down. Uh, Yes, Israel does have many politicians uh, that were in and out, or at least were more prominent and then more backbenchers. Uh, But yes, uh, I'm not sure that I have what it takes to... To be a good politician. I think I know that I'm a very good campaigner and uh but I don't know that I have what it takes to survive in politics.
0: Yeah, it's a rough it's a rough sport. Um and, very,
1: the roughest.
0: <laughs> And and you're on the left. So if you're the equivalent of what I guess the Democrats would be here in the US. Yes. As far as where you are. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, definitely on all social issues. Uh I you would put me way out there uh, on the left uh but of course uh I'm when it comes to issues that relate to Israel zionism the conflict um in in certain circles certainly today uh I would be you know the left has gone uh to really to kind of anti-zionist uh areas and that's not where I am
0: yeah and I, that's something I've, no, I've been noticing more and more. And that's definitely something that I want to touch on a little bit later. But your new book, and that's why I, th- I asked the, the prior question, because th- when I read your new book or I didn't read it, but I heard about it and I started looking into it, I immediately assumed you were on the right because it just it fits so well. And then when I learned that you're actually on the left, I was like, OK, now I'm very interested. So it was very interesting to, 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 to know that. But your new book, basically, The War of Return, um, can you explain it to people who might not be as proficient in, in Middle East and, and its politics and the right of return and all that stuff? What is the right of return and what UNRWA is?
1: Sure. So uh, the book was written by Adi Schwartz and myself. Both of us uh, come very much from the left. As I said, I was a member of the Labour Party. I worked with Yossi Balin, the architect of the Oslo Accords, with Shimon Peres, uh, and Adi Schwartz, uh, my co-writer, he was a senior editor of Haaretz, which is Israel's left-wing liberal paper. So we very much came from the left, uh, very kind of strong supporters of a two-state solution for many years. Uh, voted for labor, merits, left-wing parties over the years. And uh, we were uh, we believed in the politics of the left, uh, especially when it came to peace, making peace uh, with the Palestinians. Uh, and it was based on a very simple idea. The idea was that Israel can make peace by handing over the land that it acquired as a result of the six-day uh, Six war, 1967 war, Uh, This is the famous land for peace formula. And our thinking was the day that Israel uh, gives the Palestinians uh, the West Bank and Gaza is the day we have peace, like really simple. uh, You know, we were very angry at the settlers growing up, that they're preventing us from attaining peace and all of that. And uh, we were very excited when Ehud Barak in 2000 went to Camp David uh, and basically put on the table a proposal that would have given the Palestinians a sovereign state in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, This would have ended the occupation. It would have been uh, sovereignty for the Palestinians. Uh, Settlements were not going to be an issue, you know, when people talk about it, so Uh, They were either going to be dismantled or exchanged for equivalent land. Uh, East Jerusalem, including holy sites, were going to be the capital. Uh, The Palestinians just had to say yes. Uh, And rather, uh, Arafat walked away. And it later repeated itself in 2008 with Abu Mazen and Olmert. And again, he walks away. And... Not only do they walk away, it, it's followed by this bloody, murderous campaign of, of just bombings in our streets, buses, cafes. Um, and the feeling was, okay, what's going on? It just didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. To all the Israelis in the peace camp, like myself, like Adi, like many others, we felt that our main premise collapsed. We handed over the land or we proposed to hand over the land. Where was our peace? And basically, we uh, each in our own way, and ultimately we met and decided to write the book together. uh, We went back to the drawing board and said, "Okay, if the Palestinians could have had a, a state twice, at least there were more, but twice at least concrete, known opportunities in 2000, 2008, and they did not take that state, then what do they want? Because I know sometimes we make so many excuses, but I think one of the things we do well in the book is bring it back to basics, which is if people want a state and they can have a state, they say yes, right? That's it. If you want a state and you can have a state, you say yes. No need to complicate it further. so if you don't say yes then you must want something else more and this is what uh, we began to look into i met with palestinians and both the dni basically realized amazingly that the answer was hiding in plain sight uh the palestinians were telling us what they wanted we either didn't listen or when we listened we didn't take it seriously They told us that they wanted something that they called a right of return, which in the book we show is neither a right nor a return. But just to say what it means, Palestinians claim that millions of them, the lowest number is five and a half million, the higher number is eight million, even nine. They claim that millions of Palestinians possess in their mind a right that overrides Israeli sovereignty to settle inside Israel. So not inside the Palestinian state or inside Israel, pre-1967 Israel. Now, th- th- there isn't such a right at all in international relations. No people possess a collective right to settle in a third country uh, against its will. It just doesn't exist. Uh, so. But And the numbers, of course, are such that if such a right is exercised, again, it's not a right, but in their mind, if such an act of settling millions of Palestinians in the land is exercised, then the Jews become a minority in an Arab state. Now, this means that throughout all the years of negotiations, when we had Palestinian leaders tell us that they support a two-state solution, the only two states they ever had in mind was a Palestinian state in the West Bank in Gaza and another Palestinian state to replace Israel. They never, not for a single moment, had a vision of peace, a two-state vision of peace, in which one of the states remains the sovereign state of the Jewish people. And this is very important to understand because right now there's this very fashionable debate. One state, two state, all kinds of like the two state solution is dead. And I always go crazy because I'm like, it was never alive because the Palestinians never for a single moment were willing to entertain a peaceful vision whereby the Jewish people get to keep their state. In any borders, in any shape or form. Mm-hmm. So the book basically traces the origin of this idea, why the Palestinians even believe that they possess it, why they don't. We compare it to other refugee groups in other wars of the time, wars of partition, just like our war was, wars of partition, when empires collapse, new states establish, borders are, are drawn. Tens of millions of refugees were created as a result of such wars over the 20th century. None of them are refugees today. We explain why the Palestinians are the only ones who were indulged in a way uh, in allowing them to maintain the idea that even though the war ended more than 70 years ago, it's still really ongoing. There's still refugees from that war being born every day, despite the war supposedly being over. So uh, we explain why the West allowed this to continue. Uh, We speak about honour. we write about UNRWA, the UN temporary agency, still after 70 years, a temporary agency. A long time to be temporary. Exactly, that sustains this whole idea that the war of 1948 is basically not over, that Palestinians are still refugees from it. Uh, And ultimately, we argue that this is the biggest obstacle to peace. Uh, There is nothing more important. Sure, settlements don't help and all that. But in terms of really zeroing in on the reason of why the conflict still persists, why we don't have peace, this is it.
0: Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> um,
1: That's why there's a whole book.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so the you know, how I look at it and, and I hear this because I hear a lot of times, even here, I think maybe two weeks ago in New York, there was a big protest from the river to the sea and, um, you know, people marching down the streets. And um, it's kind of. I don't know, they just make it as if some freedom fighters and and, and it's completely fine. But if you and, and it's somehow it's it's a narrative that is OK, you know, from the from the river to the sea. And I don't think it takes into account what that actually means. But if you look throughout history, you know, the Romans controlled all of Europe. You had the Byzantines, the Frankish kingdom, the Median Empire, Caliphate in Spain, Russian Empire, Mongol Empire, Ottoman Empire, India, Pakistan, even Native Americans here in the U.S., right? And there's hundreds, hundreds, like it, there's no point where someone throughout history has occupied a land. There's just been constant flows of empires moving from one place to the other. Every country right now sits on a land that at some point belonged to someone else. But there is no other group calling for that land to be returned to the to quote unquote rightful owner. Why is Israel and Palestine the only one where it's somehow politically okay to say like, yeah, we, we, we want that land back. It's, there's no other country. And I'm sure that's something you reference in the book, but it just, it blows my mind that it's okay to say that.
1: Um, of course, the short answer is that it's the Jews, uh, because, uh, we show really throughout the 20th century. I mean, if you want a short primer to the 20th century, really short lesson, the 20th century is all about the transition from empire to nation state. That's it. You begin the 20th century when much of the world is divided between empires. You end the 20th century when all of the world is divided between nation states. I have a friend who says that if you're not ice and if you're not water, you're a nation state. So if you're not Antarctica and if you're not ocean, then you're a nation state. That's it. That's how we end the 20th century. Uh, and the transition from empire to nation state is bloody. It includes two world wars, and decolonizations, and civil wars, and because the process is one of setting borders, where various groups and nations. Each make a land grab because the empires disappear and collapse and every glu- group, whether it be Hungarians or Czechs or Slovaks or Poles or Hindus or Muslims, they all make a grab for their land as the empires disappear. Now, the Jews and the Arabs are no different. They all make a land grab for, uh, I mean, it goes through a more orderly process, but at the end of the day, it's about establishing a share of the former imperial land for themselves. The problem is that the Arab world, uh, while it takes its share of the defunct Ottoman Empire, it denies the right of the Jewish people to get that. By the way, they also make a mess of the Kurds and the Armenians who were also uh, allowed to get a share and the Turks basically killed the Kurdish. uh, But there's other stories. Anyway, they also tried to kill the Jewish effort to get a share of it, Uh, but they didn't succeed. The Jews fought back, Um, and uh, they weren't willing to let it go. Every other group, as much as they weren't happy about it, I can assure you the Germans were not happy when— like. Half of their country became Poland. No one was happy. I can assure you no one was happy. Yeah, People ultimately let it go. They moved on. Now, the Arab world, and especially the Arab refugees, later to be called the Palestinians, would not let it go. And I do think a part of it has to do with the fact that it's not just Kurds and Armenians, it's Jews. And somehow that drove them crazy. That Jews, who in their worldview, theology, history, Jews were like the, these like low lives who were at the margins of history. You know, they were like these tailors in poor neighborhoods in ba- Baghdad. I mean, they were not supposed to win a war, and they do. And the Arab world would just not let it go. And the Arab world, unfortunately, in the 1950s, was in a position to force the Western world to comply. Uh, Oil was a big deal. Europe reconstruction after World War II needs oil. America needs oil. The Arab world is fairly united at this point, so it's able to stake a strong position. Um, uh, The the Cold War is a big deal. So uh, the West is fearful that it will not comply with Arab demands. The Arabs will go to the Soviet side. So all of these factors play and they lead to the Western world ultimately sustaining this bizarre creation of UNRWA that basically sustains for 70 years the idea that the Jewish victory in the War of 1948 is temporary and will one day be undone. Have patience.
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny because I'll see people, let's say, in California, right, uh, progressives, and, and they're protesting against Israel and River to the Sea, all the, the the regular shtick. But if you were to tell them, hey, you know, you should probably return that land of California to Mexico because it used to belong to Mexico or other parts of the country to the Native Americans, you know, your massive house worth millions of dollars and all the, the and forfeit all the other stuff that you own that would be a big no-no you know i don't think anybody here in the us i don't care how progressive you are no one's giving up their 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 land their cars their everything they own to give it back to quote unquote rightful owners and again it's just it's one of those things where it's this um, cognitive dissonance where they'll say one they'll, they'll talk out of both sides of their mouth
1: and it's not even the rightful owner. That's the thing. I mean, yes. we really show. Yeah, I mean, the Ottoman Empire was divided between various rightful owners, Kurds and Armenians and Jews and Arabs and Turks. And no one was happy. So, of course, as soon as uh, the empires were gone, everyone fought everyone. So the Turks were able to kill the Kurdish independence. And they made a hash of the Armenian independence, but ultimately the Armenians were able to pull through. Uh, and Arabs were able to attain some form of independence. And they tried to prevent the Jews from getting their independence and failed. But again, except with the Jews, everybody moved on and they accepted the outcome of these various wars and the establishment of lines. Yes, India didn't want the subcontinent to be divided into Pakistan and India, but it was divided. And that was it. And millions of Hindus and Muslims fled and were expelled across sides and it was brutal and bloody. And that's it. No one goes back and there's no rightful owner. This is it. And they move on. And that's that's the thing we show that the Palestinians, because of the the Cold War, the oil and everything, were given an exception that no other refugee group was in, was given. Everyone else was basically told the tough message of the 20th century, which was tough. This is it. Move on. These are the new borders. These are the new states. Wherever you are. Is wherever you stay. That's it. And only Israel is subjected to this like ongoing institutional idea that the borders are not settled, that Jewish self determination is not settled. And it is a constant view in the Arab world, happily less so, but certainly among the Palestinians that Israel is merely a temporary aberration that will one day be corrected.
0: You know, I saw a tweet uh, the other day, and I thought it was very apt. Zain- and Basically, it said, "Zionism is the only indigenous rights movement hated by those who advocate for indigenous rights.
1: Yes. I mean... Uh when you go deep into it, you really see how even that was uh, manipulated because as soon as the Jews were actually successful in it, this became a problem. Yeah. But yes, I mean, ultimately, uh, one of the things that I think we show in the book and in general, it's amazing how normal Israel is. We're somehow made to believe that Zionism is this exceptional idea. When you look into the beginning of the 20th century, and especially after World War I, Zionism, the idea of liberation of peoples and nations to establish states, is the governing norm. This is how we transition from empire to nation states. I even have cartoons from the period which show all the nations being rising, basically, to take their fair share of the lands of the empires. And by the way, I always like to say that if the Jews got their fair share of the Ottoman Empire based on population, Israel would have been six times the size. OK, so just we have a bit of proportion. So the idea that the Jews are a people that they have a historical connection to the land, that they have a right to self-determination in it, that once the Ottoman Empire is gone, it is their rightful uh, right to be sovereign in this land, together with the Arabs and the Kurds and the Maronites. And that was normal. Uh, But somehow today it's made to be as if it was some weird idea. No, actually really, really normal.
0: Yeah, Israel's only and again. Like you, you, you know more about this than I do. But if I'm not mistaken, it's the only country in modern times to give back a land that is larger than the actual country. We gave the Sinai Peninsula, which is massive. It was probably like double the size of Israel. Just Gave it back. No, you know, no ifs and buts. It took a few years, obviously, to get everything. But I had a, that that doesn't happen. Anywhere else, and we still do that. We gave it up, you know. We gave up Gaza, which we definitely should. We there's no, you know, there's no reason for us to be there. But we keep making these gestures, and I think, like, if you look at at history after World War II, you know, the the Jews that lived in the Middle East and North Africa, they were pretty much pillaged, murdered, and and expelled. Almost a million Jews that lived in Arab countries prior to to '48. Nowadays, there was a million Jews at the time. Nowadays, there's like four thousand. Jews and half of them live in Morocco. Right. So about 2000 of them in one country and then another 2000 in the the rest of the other uh, Muslim country. Yet no U.N. uh, or other agencies or organization demanded uh, restitution for the property and the money taken from them. There's no one saying, hey, these are refugees. Let them go back. to the." That doesn't that's not even a conversation that anyone brings up. Yeah. So what's the difference between the two?
1: So uh, first of all, the, the case of Jews in Arab countries in general is a fascinating story. Uh, it's less known in America because uh, the American Jewish experience is mostly one uh, of immigration from Eastern Europe. Yeah. Uh, but today, if you, need to under, if you want to understand Israel, half of Israel's population today are Jews who came from North Africa and the Middle East and Persia. Now, those are Jewish communities that in most cases preceded Islam. So we're talking about Jewish communities that are 2,000, 2,500 years old. They go back to the Babylonian exile uh, and preceded, basically, uh, the advent of Islam uh, in the 7th century. Now, with the conquest of the entire Middle East and North Africa by Islam and the Arab world uh, beginning in the 7th century— those Jewish communities become part of the Arab world and are accorded a lower status. Uh, They're not killed because they're not infidels. They're still people of the book. I always like to call them the people who got the first book right, but not the sequels. So (laughs) they're kind of like mildly tolerated, but in a way that as long as they know their place, there's this reigning mythology, especially now, that's trying to promote, no, Jews and Muslims lived in harmony in Arab lands. You know, it's Zionism that ruined all of it. Sure. And I always like to say, look, uh, it's the same harmony. Well, now it's uh, interesting to talk about it. It's the same harmony that supposedly existed in Gone with the Wind, right? When blacks and whites lived in harmony, as long as everyone knew their place. Yeah. Um And exactly when does this harmony, uh, so called harmony, right? As long as uh, Jews knew their place, they had markers, they made it very clear that they are a humiliated lower level. They're not the equals of Arabs and Muslims. But uh, when in the 18th and 19th and 20th century, Jews begin in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, to expect and demand more equal rights you see increasing violence and pogroms basically against Jews in Arab lands. And it culminates with the fact that once the Jews win the war against Arabs, which is unacceptable humiliation. You know, now everyone talks about the Nakba as a disaster. But this was, you talked about branding. This was a 1990s rebranding. The Nakba is mentioned in 1949 as the humiliation of having lost a war to the Jews. That's the disaster. The disaster is how could we lose a war to these low lives? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the unacceptable humiliation. And that's also why there's a desire to undo it rather than move on and say, fine, we lost the war. These lands are gone. Let's move on and set a border. So the revenge against the Jews in Arab lands is basically mass expulsion, of course, expropriation, all their, uh, I mean, everything they own is taken from them. This is actually ethnic cleansing, not talking about it in college ethnic cleansing. This is what it yeah. actually looks like, that within a decade, you move from having a million people who pre-existed your own culture, and then they're gone. And they were gone simply because the Arab world could not bear to accept the idea that the cousins of these Jews, right? At this point, they're the cousins, they're not, won a war. And also, in my mind, it's one of the greatest shooting yourself in the foot events. And there are quite a few in the Arab world. Because, first of all, why throw out people who did not make war on you? We're good citizens. I mean, Jews wanted to be, many of them wanted to be part of Arab countries. Yeah. You throw them out. They're a contributing productive part of your society. Bam! Out. And of course, the and and then you and then yeah, most of them go to Israel, which well, strengthens Israel, right? Thank you. And and the biggest thing is that the Arab world likes to say that Jews are not a people. They're only followers of a faith. They're not a people. They're not a nation. Well, if Jews are only followers of a faith if, and, and they're not a people and a nation, what business do you have taking revenge on Jews in Syria for something done by Jews in Israel? Like if they're not a people, but, but no, I mean, in that the Arabs exposed, how clearly they view all Jews as belonging to one people. So really one of the greatest kind of shooting yourself in the foot in general, shall I say no country that got rid of its, its Jews did well by it.
0: Yeah. And that's, and that's something I actually want to talk about a little bit later about that, the the identity of, of, uh, of Jewish people, but A little earlier when when we talked about the the War of Return and what happens if the Palestinians become a majority in in, in Israel and the Jews become the minority, that wouldn't bode well for Jewish people, just historically speaking. And if you look at uh, the—I think it's about 1.5 million Arabs that currently live in Israel— you know, if you take everything into consideration, they live better and with more rights than just about any other Arab nation. They live in a democracy with LGBTQ rights, personal rights. They can be atheists and not get, and not get jailed. Women can be free. You know, there's there are obviously families that that make them uh, that maybe take away those freedoms, but generally speaking, like the country affords you those freedoms, and. They can dress how they want. They can basically be whatever they want, just like any liberal democracy. But I think in the world, the image of Israel is is not that. It's an apartheid state that um, doesn't give Arabs any opportunity. And it's the complete opposite.
1: All true. I mean, uh, <laughs> yes. First, I have an Arab colleague, a scholar, who gave me a great phrase. He said that if you want to understand Jewish-Arab relations within Israel, he said you need to understand that within the state of Israel, the Jews are the numerical majority, but in their minds, they're the minority. And the Arabs are the numerical minority, but in their minds, they're the majority. Now, of course, if you zoom out of Israel to the region, that's the case. The Jews are a tiny minority of about 7 million among nearly half a billion Arabs, not to mention one and a half billion Muslims in the wider uh, area. So, of course, the Jews are a tiny ethnic, linguistic, national, religious minority in a region which, by the way, is not known right now for its great tolerance of minorities. The only minorities that survive in this region are the armed minorities. That's pretty much the case. But so, first of all, the Jews are a small minority in the Arab and Islamic region, uh, and we're and we're deeply cognizant of that. Even if we're a majority in the tiny strip of land which is Israel and its pre nineteen sixty seven ceasefire lines. Uh, but it's not just about the the relationship of majority minority that is essentially flipped it's also about really the mentality i mean jews were shaped by centuries of being a minority and not just any minority i mean especially if you're an american now being in a minority sounds like this cool thing oh no. yeah yeah being a minority sucked for <laughs> centuries for millennia it meant that other people told you, basically decided if you lived or died and mostly died. I mean, what you could own, where you could go, where you could live. So Jews were a persecuted minority for centuries and that that really shapes a lot of how you think. And the Arabs, on the contrary, literally have no experience of being a minority. I mean, their expansion was so rapid That even in kind of their backgrounds and their history, there's not a lot of coming to terms with with what it means to be an Arab or Islamic minority. It's It's not an issue, a major issue, because to their credit, their conquests were very successful and very rapid. So they have a very strong sense of history of being dominant majorities wherever they are. Uh, and suddenly, they find themselves in an insane quirk of history, being a minority to the Jews. This this is nearly impossible. It means that even if you go through the whole list of equality and rights and collective rights and individual rights, fundamentally underneath it, something seethes because it just can't. B, that Arabs find themselves a minority to Jews in an Arab and Islamic region. Uh, So we need to understand that this is the bigger context. And everything else that happens within it is details, which is why I often like to say that when you understand everything, the fact that Jewish-Arab relations within Israel are not worse is a miracle.
0: Yeah. And, and that's another thing, for the most part, Jews and Arabs within Israel get along pretty well, you know, m- just as well as, as any other. And if you look at the majority of Muslim countries in, in the Middle East and in North Africa, they're about 95% to 100% Muslim. There's just There's not a lot of cultural diversity going on. And again, I- Israel... The, the the Arabs that live there have more freedoms than any other country, and they pretty much get along with, you know, is there room for improvement? A hundred percent. There's always room for improvement, and we're a work in progress, and we're always developing and evolving just like any other country. But it's I think what drives me crazy is just the narrative and the story that I keep reading about in the news is so divorced, so far removed than what is actually happening on the ground And it's shaping a lot of what people think on the street. And it's very frustrating to me.
1: Of course. Of course. And it's also uh, something that I see a lot that it gets. uh, America takes its own problems. One of the things that I see in general, and uh, I used to travel. Now now it's all Zoom. But I used (laughs) to travel to speak, you know, in places like, South Africa and Northern Ireland and the US and everywhere you see countries project their own problems and their own issues on us. Yeah. And I I remember once someone asked me about uh apparently she introduced a new word that to me it was new colorism. Not saying racism anymore, colorism. Okay. So she That's new to me. Yeah, so she asked me to explain how colorism shapes Israeli-Palestinian-Jewish-Arab relations. And at this point, I was like, you know what? Go ahead and try to figure out who is Jewish and who is Arab in this country based on our skin tone. You are this. You cannot (laughs) tell us apart. Yeah. But, you know, America takes its own fraught and terrible history, with slavery, with racism, and projects it on on, an unrelated context. Yeah. And and inverse things and makes up things. Oh, or once I visited Northern Ireland and, and I visited Ireland and I saw them, you know, they all, they march with Palestinian flags and then the other side marches with Israeli flags and I see all the passion and intensity. And at one point I realized there was like, you seriously don't know what's going on in our region, right? You just you just decided that the Irish are the Palestinians and the British are the Israelis or the Northern yeah. Irish. And from that moment on, you found yourself like a Disneyland way to replay the conflict between you without the consequences you had when you actually had live terrorism and war. Yeah. And the same for South Africa. I saw South Africa. I mean. You know, they try to sell us, apropos, you're talking about image. This is the inversion of Israel. South Africa sold to the world a story about post-apartheid Rainbow Nation, Vuvuzelas uh, from, you know, and like every, when you go there, it's apartheid by any other name, okay? In some cases, even worse. Uh, But they play this image to the world. And you see young people, what, they're going to deal with the real issues? There's so many issues to deal with in South Africa. That's boring. They can no longer do what their parents did, which was, you know, fight apartheid. That glory is gone. And they don't want to deal with the real issues of poverty, poverty. And education. These are hard slogging issues. Isn't it just great to decide that Israel is apartheid and fight Israel? And again, it's this Disneyland of like where you you project your own country's problems on Israel, you fight Israel, and you do nothing about your own country. So I've seen it. It's bizarre. And it has literally nothing to do with us.
0: I think it's one of the things it is, is it's the least amount of friction for people. It's 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 almost like politically, socially, it's it just has become okay to criticize Jews, Israel. And if you do that, you can kind of feel like you're politically involved without the backlash of maybe some of the other things that people should be protesting but are not. And I think what annoys me more, most is that it's extremely rare that I hear about Israel in any other context. If, if you have travel shows, food, um, LGBTQ rights, tech scene, whatever it is, they will always marry the Palestinian issue with Israel. And that's not true for any other country. You know, when they're talking about Australia, you know, they're not mentioning the indigenous people were considered fauna and flora up until the 70s. Right. When they talk, it just there's no other they don't bring up the political issues of the region in any other country, yeah. but yet for Israel, every single time they can't divorce themselves from the issue. They can't just say like, "Hey, you know, look at the beach in Tel Aviv, and now we're going to drive to the West Bank," and it's just like, "No, why? Why can't you just give us the one story?"
1: Yeah, I know. I have a friend who calls it the Sami's twins uh, phenomenon. But I want to say something about criticism. Sure. Nothing from what I hear. Is criticism. And you know, we're already spent at least two, three, four decades uh, in business environments learning how to criticize, right? We've all been trained in how to give criticism. What does it look like? You tell people what they've done well, you tell people what they haven't done well and how they can improve. I dare you to find any time that this is what uh, is directed at Israel, a kind of benign form of saying Israel that does that extremely well. Uh, it's great. Israel has made great progress on this issue. Uh, there are all, these points that are still not good, and this is how it could improve them. There has never been something that like that in all the forums that claim to criticize Israel. I have a colleague who's at the head of this wonderful organization called UN Watch that actually tries to keep the UN honest. I mean, good luck to him. And uh, oh, Hillel?
0: Hillel. yeah,
1: yeah. So, that. so we talk about uh, you know the Orwellian named uh, UN Human Rights Council. Like, no,
0: no it's, words. It's so it's so ironic that those those countries are at the head of the UN uh, Human Rights Watch.
1: I know, and it's like there's no no word in that is true. But the thing is this, they have all these reports, okay? Most Most of the votes and reports are against Israel. Now, Hillel always focuses on the numbers. You know, he shows how few reports and condemnations are of other countries and how disproportionate it is, the condemnations of Israel. But I've always talked with Hillel that he should also emphasize the content, not just the numbers. Because condemnations of other countries look like this. Let's say condemnations of Sudan look like this. We really commend Sudan for having made a great effort to kill a a little less people last year. Yay, Sudan. And we would be happy if this were to continue. Okay, this is what a condemnation of Sudan looks like. A condemnation of Israel is always dark, evil, dark, dark, evil with never a point of light, never, oh, Israel did this and is improving on that. So this should tell you that this is not criticism. This is not what criticism looks like. This is theology. This tells you that there is an evil out there, period.
0: Yeah. And I mean, we we see that, right? There's there was recently something with China uh, where all these countries just kind of—I uh, forget exactly what they signed—but there was—it was definitely not condemnation. And you see with we, with the Uyghurs, right? It's about a million people in concentration camps. I mean, they call it education camps, but it's really concentration camps. We see what's going on in in Yemen. Uh, I don't know, Boko Haram. Just name it. There's—it's endless. And there seems to be a very specific outrage in the world for Muslim suffering only when it's in. Palestine. And the numbers don't even back that up, uh, because for the most part, it's it'll be something very minute that the media tends to blast it and make it into something sensational that it's really not. But with the Uyghurs, with Syria, with Yemen, all these other countries that are far, it's not even comparable. It's it's and the amount of energy, time, And and money and and the laws that they're trying to, especially in the UN, right? Um, I I saw this, um, I think, I don't know if you put it, but someone put it and I saw there was a Kurdish leader that said that I wish we would have gotten the Jews as enemies then the world would care. And that's just so, it's so true and it's so frustrating at the same time.
1: Yes, and that also answers your question of course uh, on the PR. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Because I mean, this is it. I, I have a, a colleague with whom I have these arguments about PR all the time. She she always tells us how terrible we are and how we must miss every opportunity to make our case. And I, you know, as much as I can be critical of our efforts and I think we can do better, I tell her that I think at the end of the day, the Palestinians have discovered what every other group who went against the Jews discovered in history. There is nothing that you will say about the Jews that will not be believed. And when you work against this background, you don't actually have have to be very good because they say genocide and people say, "Mm, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. No evidence, no numbers. Clearly it's not happening. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that seems about right. Ethnic yeah. cleansing, genocide, colonialism. I mean, they've discovered that you can say anything about the Jews and you can make it worse and worse and worse without caveats. As I said, this is not criticism and it will be believed.
0: Well, the 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 weird part here in the US, I feel like for Jews we're in a space where on the left, which you would think would support Israel because it is the only liberal uh, country. The only, it's, it's the only place where your beliefs, the liberals, the multiculturalism, gay rights, et cetera, et cetera, is mirrored in the Middle East. The, the only place, right? Like The only place where people who are, uh, who are gay can go and just live freely is Israel. Yet they support the side that hates them and would kill them or would at least jail them. And it's so weird for me. It, I I don't know. It just it, it's one of those things where it just it's. And then on the right you have people that don't like you for the mere fact that you're just Jewish, right? I mean, I'm talking about extremes here. I'm not talking about the center. That's where the the majority of of good, honest, good faith conversations are happening. But on the right, you're not liked simply for being Jewish, and you have people who are racist and, and Nazi-like. And on the left, you're not liked because you're as the supporter of Israel. And it's like, OK, uh, you know, you're almost campless, I, like politically and ideologically. You're, you, you don't have a home. And I do feel like they, they need a third party because I, I do see a growing trend on Twitter and on, on social media of people who find themselves not aligned with either group. But want to have good faith conversation, then just don't have them. And I think they also don't have someone who they can support politically. I think, like in Israel, obviously we have all these different political groups, right? Too many sometimes. But here, there's two. Here, there's just not enough. Right? Two political groups cannot sustain three hundred plus million people.
1: I I think also I I think there's something a little more sinister going on. You talked about political homelessness. And there's no doubt, especially, I mean, the great fear is if the Democratic Party will go through the process that the Labour Party went through in the UK of the Um, then there is a real fear for Jews to be politically homeless. My fear is that it doesn't end with politics. The idea of rendering Jews politically homeless, in my view, is a precursor for a greater project of rendering Jews homelessness, homeless. So uh, part of the whole one-state debate, why can't Jews just live as a minority in an Arab state? We're sure it's going to work out so well. Sure, sure. This is, all, this is all part of this, you know, let's render the Jews homeless again. And of course, the irony is that when Herzl begins to imagine Zionism, the anti-Semites around him, the nice anti-Semites with whom he talks, tell him, the problem is that you don't have a home. You know, Germans have a home, French have a home, you don't have a home. That's your problem. When you will have a home, we'll treat you normally, because you will be just like us, like the Germans, like the French, like the Italians. We like people who have homes. That's what people called Herzl. He believed them. Uh, he said, yeah, you know, if we'll have a home, people will treat us like everybody else because people like other people who have a home. And now the Jews have a home. And you see this, like, pressure from so many directions to make the Jews homeless again. So, uh, yeah, I actually view it as a little more sinister. I don't see it as just some coincidence of the jews are politically homeless or something like that
0: have you received any pushback on your book from either either sides left or right
1: so one of my favorite uh kind of reviews or comments uh they come from the palestinian side uh when uh if i may say Everything that comes, I think, I mean, the book has gotten wonderful reviews and yeah. people can go on Amazon and see what just individual readers. And one of the great things is that it's it's the kind of book that if people read, they become missionaries for the book. Like they, yeah. they, they're like, you got to read this. You got to read this. So, <laughs> uh, and that's great. But one of my favorite reviews that came out when the book just came out at the end of April and it was by a Palestinian. And it was a very angry review. And one of the ang- the things he was most angry about, uh, I could summarize it in the word, duh. I mean, he basically was angry that we described the Palestinian demand for so-called return to settle in Israel as the fact that we described it as flying under the radar or hiding in plain sight. His whole review was basically, what did you think we wanted? We've been telling you all the time. Of course, this is what we want. Uh, of, co- of course, when you come from the Palestinian side, you don't make the case that we make, which is it's not justified. They make the case that, of course, it's justified, it's their right. They, but but I have not met any Palestinian who will read the book and say, what is she talking about? We were willing to give it up a long time ago. We accept the Jewish state. I mean, you it, in that sense, it's just so easy. And so many people uh, over the years, when I give talks about it, they tell me you cannot generalize about Palestinians. Now, on this thing, you can. It is the yeah. broadest Palestinian consensus. There is no dissenting voice on this. And I always tell them why, you know, it's so easy to disprove me. Go find me Palestinians who will speak clearly and openly about the fact that they're not demanding return. But no one ever comes back because the Palestinians constantly prove the thesis of our book, which is this is the most important thing for them. In fact, it's so important for them to undo 1948, to undo the establishment of the state of Israel, that it's more important than establishing a state for themselves. Once you understand that, their behavior is consistent throughout. To their credit, they take the same decision again and again. Every time that they're told, look, you can have a state and part of the land, but the other part, there will be a state for the Jewish people, their answer has been consistently, no way. We'll keep fighting whatever it costs us if it costs us losing war and coming under occupation and dispossession, we'll keep fighting. Yeah. So uh, they're very consistent. And and I really love that those are the reviews that come from the Palestinian side because they're not pushback. I call them actually digging deep, like, yeah. deeper.
0: They're really honest.
1: <laughs> they are. Yeah. And uh, I've, I've made up a word that I put in the book. I call it West planing. You know, like mansplaining. Like
0: mansplaining, yeah. Like
1: mansplaining, it's the same attitude. It's basically when Western journalists and uh, diplomats explain away what Palestinians say. Palestinians say, from the river to the sea, the right of return is sacred. It belongs to us. Um, and I will meet with European diplomats and they'll say, ah, oh, they know it's not going to happen. No, oh, they're just saying that. I'm like, you know what? Give them the respect of taking them at their word. They're actually very serious. They're so serious that they make the same decision again and again. They repeatedly forgo the opportunity to have a state in part of the land if the price of that state means that they will have to waive the war of 1948 bye-bye. And so listen to them. They're telling you. Take them seriously.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's it's it goes back to what you said earlier, where they project other art, whatever is happening in the Middle East, onto themselves. And um, a lot of people just don't understand the culture in the Middle East, especially from the West. They think it's exactly the same as it is here in Europe or the U.S. It is not. It's just not. It's completely different. And for people who don't understand it and who don't live in the Middle East, they 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 just they'll never get it. But I want to talk a little bit about. Um, about refugees. Because um, Palestinians, they live in, in, in quote unquote, refugee camps. But these refugee camps are, <laughs> they've been there for a very, very long time, some for decades. So how does it make sense that 75% of the people in Gaza are registered as refugees from Palestine? And they get a lot of, I don't know how much money they get each year, but I'm assuming it's in the hundreds of millions. And Why don't they put that into building infrastructure, better education, better hospitals, uh, new buildings instead of tunnels and warfare? Um, And also, one of us suggested, and like you said earlier, that there's 5.6 million Palestinian refugees. I don't, and and I think you, I, I heard you say this somewhere, but I think this is the only place where the refugees are just becoming more and more throughout the decades, rather than less and less. So can you explain that a little bit?
1: Certainly. So first of all, just to understand, the refugee issue, the idea that they are refugees, that they have a so-called right of return, is the most important thing in Palestinian ideology, mindset, and identity. But it's actually, in practice, a very small issue, because they are now refugees. Uh, Out of the 5.5, 5.6 that UNRWA registers in its areas of operations, let's break it down. 40%, 2.2 million, live in Gaza and the West Bank. They're not refugees. If you live in Gaza and the West Bank, you're not a refugee from Palestine, period. Uh, And by now, also, most of those who claim to be refugees from Palestine and Gaza and the West Bank have been born in Gaza and the West Bank. They've never been displaced by where They never fled, by the way. The majority of them don't even live in camps anymore. They can be a middle-class lawyer from Ramallah, who's 30, and claims to be— So they're not refugees, period. Wherever they are is wherever they're going to build their future, not in Israel. Another 40%, 2.2 million, are citizens of Jordan. Jordan naturalized all of them when it annexed the West Bank. That's it. They're not refugees. People who are citizens of a country are not refugees from another country in which most of them have never been. So they're not refugees. And again, 82% don't live in camps. They're middle class. And even some of them are wealthy businessmen traveling through the Gulf. And still they're registered as refugees. They're not refugees. And then the remaining million who are in Syria and Lebanon, where they really don't have uh, either citizenship and they're not in Palestine. uh, Most of them have left. We by now have data. They've left Syria. They left Lebanon. They could be citizens of Sweden, of Germany, of the U.S. My favorite refugee is the multimillionaire father of Gigi and Bella Hadid. Uh, He's still registered as a refugee because his parents uh, went through the refugee camp in Syria, because it never takes anyone off their books. I mean, unless they die, but if they yeah. become citizens of another country, which normally means you're not a refugee, they still keep them. So at the end of the day, uh, they're not refugees. The numbers of actual um the numbers of actual refugees is probably several tens of thousands if you include. The descendants may be 20,0, 300,000. That's it. Those are the kind of numbers that the actual UN refugee agency can easily settle, either in Lebanon or Syria or other countries, and that's it. So in practice, they're not refugees. Now you ask, why do they not take the billion dollars a year that the West gives them through UNRWA and build a new future? Because that's not what they want. They want still to undo the war of 1948, which means that every child born in Gaza is not being told, Gaza is your home, make sure you make it great. When Israel left Gaza in 2005, both the military and the civilians and the settlements uh, People talked about making it into the Singapore of the Middle East or making it into a Dubai. But that's not what they want. In their mind, Gaza is not their home. Even after five generations, Gaza is merely a way station, which they inhabit until they take back what is in their mind, their real home, which is the state of Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if you live in a place where from day one you're being told it's not your home here, your real home is there, and you are going to take it back by whatever means necessary, then you're not going to invest in it. You're not going to make it to Singapore and the Middle East because it's not your home.
0: Such a backward way of thinking about things. I I can't understand it. a, a little bit unrelated, but my, I have a question. Um, you know, if you look at, at the region of the Middle East, um, as far as climate change, uh, in the next few decades with water drying up in, in Iraq, in Egypt, and we see what's already happening in Yemen, it's it's pretty much It's a disaster zone. They don't have water. They don't have food. There's famine. And... With mass migrations and and climate refugees, uh, and with the security threats that climate change brings, do you think Israel and and the government is taking these potential threats uh, seriously?
1: (laughs) We go back to the beginning of our conversation, which is we're still working on managing this virus. uh, (laughs) Pretty much everything else has gone through the window. But I will say this: uh, I'm sure you've heard of this excellent book by. Seth, um, uh, it's called Let There Be Water.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't read it, though. Uh,
1: Yeah, it's a wonderful book, really, about how Israel was able to essentially uh, make itself not dependent on the regular cycle of water through a whole uh, policies and technology and a combination of those. So this is actually a real achievement. Uh, But generally, as Israelis, we're not known for our long-term planning capacity. We do know to deal with problems once they are in our face. So I hope we'll be able to deal with climate change the more we realize its effects on us. But I can't say it's high on the agenda here in Israel, and certainly not these days, where everything is just about the virus.
0: Yeah, I think that's an unfortunate one. I think, I you know, here I, I I hear a lot about climate change, and and you see the countries that are going to be impacted the worst. And we unfortunately live in a region prone to um, being extremely dry, extremely hot, and very politically unstable. And I think when you take all those and put them into one big melting pot of uh, of problems, I think we could. I, I don't know. I feel like that could be one issue that maybe we're not putting enough attention on and, and we should, even though Israel is water wise, uh, I know we're, we're pretty, um, independent in that sense. We get a lot of our, uh, water through the, through the sea, through, um, filtration systems that, that we set up, but the other countries around us are potentially not as stable. And when, uh, you know, we saw in Syria when they didn't have enough, uh, weed to make bread, what happened? And, I just feel like that's something that potentially in the future could be a problem and the government should probably put a little bit more emphasis on. But, yeah.
1: So here I'll just channel uh, Shimon Peres for a minute. I mean, uh, and by the way, his name is Seth Siegel, Let There Be Water. Uh, This could be a wonderful basis for cooperation.
0: Yeah. Potentially, yeah. I mean, we could sell the technology to our neighboring countries uh, for water. I know we we sent, uh, we sent did that with Iran, I think, in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, before everything went to shit with them. But yeah. Um, so yeah, just a couple of final questions. Um, you know, there's a lot of political uprising right now here in the U.S. And um, it seems like everyone that's, quote unquote, a minority and, and people like with intersectionality, everyone's trying to be a minority. Like you said, it's the cool thing to be right now uh oppressed and and a minority everyone's trying to fit in that into those categories uh so you know from african uh americans native americans and lgbtq women uh, i don't know everyone right 100% of the people are minority and um it just it's weird because jews are never in that category and jews are You know, we were almost eradicated 80 years ago, and up until the 60s and 70s, we weren't allowed in places here in the U.S. That white people were allowed, and our very existence is still questions to this day. And out of any other group in the U.S., we experience more acts of violence against us than any other group, according to FBI statistics. Yet for some reason, I don't know if you saw that hashtag yesterday um, on Twitter, the Jewish privilege one.
1: Yeah, I tweeted about it.
0: Yeah. So why are we? You know, if, as far as minority groups go, I mean, you have to put Jews up there almost as number one. Right. But they're not even in the in the debate. Why do you think that is?
1: Uh, I don't know. But uh, again, the, um, a friend of mine said the Jew has a special role in Western and, and Islamic thinking, the two civilizations to emerge essentially from uh, from the book. Um, so there's a role to play, and the role is not one that's ever placed into neat boxes. And and the thing about this role is that it has to generally be a negative role. So <laughs> if being a minority is now a good thing, then we're not going to be let into that group right now. Uh, so, um, yes, uh, this is why... Um, it actually, I mean, I think it's one of my most uh, viral uh, tweets I um, on the Jewish privilege thing. I wrote, my actual and deeply valued Jewish privilege is that I was born equal and free in the sovereign state of the Jewish people, and that I can therefore walk on this earth knowing that someone has my back. It is a fragile privilege that I have no intention of checking at any door. Uh, so at this point, it's yes, so I I can only thank you. I can only be thankful for Zionism, for all the people who've created the state of Israel. I mean, what it means for me is really the knowledge that someone has my back. That no matter what happens in the world, uh no matter how long the West and Islam take to work out their issues with Jews, at least for now, we have an army and, you know, I'm as I said, this is one privilege. I'm not checking at any door.
0: <laughs> so, I mean, I it's a couple of final questions, but uh, you're atheist, correct? Yes, yeah, very much so. As as am I. and But you're also Jewish. Very much so. As am I. <laughs> and, 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 you know, in the Middle East, there's very few, if at all. I believe Israel is the only country you can actually legally be an atheist. Other countries, most of the other countries, uh Muslim countries, if you're an atheist, you're either sentenced to, to prison or in some countries actually death. And but which is another section we, we won't get into that. But I just want to talk about the identity, because if let's say if you're an American born in Boston and let's say you're Catholic, but at twenty five you decide that you're atheist, you're no longer Catholic. But you're still an atheist and you're still Jewish.
1: So recently someone uh, said that uh, Carl Reiner, who recently passed away, uh, I think David Wolpe said that uh, he mentioned in one of the events, parties, I think when he celebrated 90, that Carl is an atheist. So Carl ran uh, up to the mic and he said, but I'm a Jewish atheist, which is a very different thing. (laughs) (laughs) Which I loved. Um, I must say it has to do, I think, geographically to the east of Israel, most people get it. To the west of Israel, they have problems. So when I speak to people in China, in India, they get it. I once was in a dinner. Someone next to me was, I mentioned that I'm very Jewish and very atheist. And he said, that's me too. He said, I'm very Hindu and very atheist. So, I think people in Eastern, what we call Eastern religions, get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People in Western religions, especially Christianity and Islam, who made belief, unlike Judaism, Judaism does not include belief as a necessary element of being Jewish. Yeah. Uh, I always tell people, you know, people say the religious definition of being a Jew is being born to a Jewish mother. I always ask people to reflect on that. I'm, I always tell them, what's religious about that? You were liberally born. You did nothing. Your mother did a lot, but you did nothing. I mean, so the whole, I mean, Judaism is much more about what you do. It's not about what you believe. We don't have arguments about dogma. So yeah, being a Jewish atheist is very much a possibility, certainly since the 19th and 20th century. It's a very powerful strand in Zionism. And uh, and yeah, I I love that identity.
0: Are you seeing more atheists uh, in Israel nowadays?
1: Um, so a lot of people, uh, again, I, I will go to another comedian. I guess atheism works well with comedians. <laughs> yeah, comedians, George Carlin,
0: so, yes. original atheist.
1: <laughs> so one comedian said, uh, she said, when I told my parents that I no longer believe in God, they were mildly distressed. But why an atheist? They told me because it's like there's something about the label that people find more jarring, which is why I insist on it. (laughs) The same with my Zionism and my feminism. I I insist on the label because a lot of people, it grates on them. But uh, so a lot of people I say, I I think will say they're agnostic, which I always uh, put down. I say that agnostics are atheists who want an insurance policy. Just in case. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's a
0: good one. That's a good one. (laughs)
1: Um, so I, I think a lot of people, if you really drill down with them and you ask them, do you actually believe there's a God who especially favors the Jewish people and swoops in to help them whenever they're in need and personally answers your prayer? I think that would bring uh the number down. Yeah. But uh, it's always difficult to get real numbers on these issues. But generally, being an atheist and a Jew is is a comfortable identity, certainly in Israel.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it is for me. And uh, the thing is, you know, when I go back to Israel and I talk to my friends, they're secular. But they, it's, it's yeah, it's a weird thing in Israel. They are secular. They're completely secular. They don't, uh, you know, they don't eat kosher and they don't keep Shabbat and they don't do any of the stuff. But when you ask them about God, they believe in God. And I feel like that's that's something in, in, I don't know if it's particular to Israel, but I think, again, I don't know numbers, but I would believe that a good percentage of the secular people in Israel still believe in God in one shape or form or the other, um, where I just completely don't.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, look, for example, um, like a lot of Zionists, you know, I, I love I, I love reading uh, the Bible and uh, the Hebrew Bible. And, and when I tell people, for example, that kids learn the Hebrew Bible in Israeli secular schools, they're always shocked, you know, because that immediately yeah. in their mind means it's a religious school. And I remember there was one group of students and I told them, look, it's like students in uh, Greece learning the Iliad and the Odyssey or students in the UK learning Shakespeare. And they were like, yeah, but those were written by people. And I was like, yeah, so was the Hebrew Bible. <laughs> and they was like silence. <laughs> it's like, who do you think wrote it? I mean, it's completely. Yeah. So for me, I love the fact that this is, uh, you know, part of our history and it is a foundational text and it's part of our culture. Uh, but it's clear to me that it was written by people in an era where to be a human being meant you believed in God, but clearly it is the creation of human beings. For me, this is what I find magnificent about it.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a funny thing. I I love that. And I, I heard you say that somewhere else where it's all people, like people think, Oh no, we, you know, we received this from some entity and it's, it's not, it's all people, people wrote it. And You can only trust people so far with uh, the wonders of the world and whatever they thought at the time was the truth, you know, five, four, five, three thousand years ago, whatever it was. And uh, I think if you look, you know, I don't know why anyone would trust sand people who didn't know basic grammar and math and anything about the truths of the world. I think we've all evolved from there. But it's a, it's a whole other sect, like religion, atheism, we can talk for another two hours. So let me end with one final question. Hopefully, you know, I, I like to try to end it on like a positive note, uh, hopefully a positive note. But now that you basically know that land is not the, the answer, like there's not enough land that we can give back that will actually have us make or give us a sustainable peace in the region. Are you optimistic about a two-state solution um, in your lifetime?
1: Okay, so before you add it in, in your lifetime, I could have <laughs> it. Uh, because I call myself now a long-term optimist uh, in the sense that because worldviews, ideologies, religion, theologies are all human-made, they can all be human remade. Uh, all our belief systems have been made and remade and reinterpreted throughout the centuries in the millennia. So I see no reason why the Arab identity or the Palestinian identity or even the Islamic identity will be remade and reinterpreted to welcome the Jewish people in their midst rather than view them as foreign invaders who belong somewhere else. I mean, those kinds of Reimaginings and reinterpretations happen all the time, uh, which is what gives me hope. But they don't happen easily, and they do take time. So my view is uh, I always like to quote uh, the Jewish sages, Hazal, who say that you might not finish the job in your lifetime, but it doesn't mean you, you get a pass to not do it. I mean, so my view is, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime. But I work to make it sooner rather than later. However long it takes.
0: You yeah, you're a little bit more optimistic on this topic than I am. But it is what it is. Inat, um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I had a blast. It was educational, sure, yes, it was funny. It was, fun. <laughs> it was a lot of a lot of fun. I, I had a really great time. So, uh, where can people find you? Where can people find the book? Uh, yeah, just.
1: Social the War of, of Return Amazon. is on any Amazon, any retailer, Barnes & Noble. If you live outside the U.S., Book Depository is very good, and uh, you can find it there. You can download on Kindle. Uh, so, yes, and, and I will say, people love the book, and they become missionaries for it. And many say, if you want to read one book about the conflict, this is it. So, go ahead.
0: I, I completely agree. Are you going to do an audio book at some uh, point?
1: Um, the publishing house, uh, not, uh, is not doing it. So n- no plans yet.
0: Okay. That's awesome. So guys go check out the book. Uh, I'm going to put all the links for a, knot for the book in the show notes. So it makes it easy for you guys to, uh, go check it out and buy it. So a, not, I want to thank you so much. I-, I had a great time. Really. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you. Me too. Take care.
0: Take care. Bye-bye.